You're listening to Lead, Sell, Grow, the Human Experience Podcast. I am your host, Eric Konovalov, and I believe that we can achieve everything we want if we take our leadership, sales ability, and personal growth to a higher level. On this show, we share ideas on how to break through our invisible boundaries, start taking steps towards our dreams, and create the life we desire. I invite you to open your mind to new possibilities, new ideas, and to the truth that everything you want is possible for you. Thank you for being here and welcome to the show. What I'm really looking forward to today is that this amazing woman, Marie Cosgrove, has her back was against it in a way that you and I could never even fathom. And you know, the w- things that she does and what we have in store for our audience is going to be uh, simply incredible today. Yeah, I can't wait. Harry, let's introduce our amazing guest today. Marie Cosgrove is the CEO of Balance Back, a company she bought after they fired her. She's a motivational speaker who's spoken on the same stages with the legendary Les Brown, Nick Wojcik, and John Maxwell. After surviving an extremely abusive childhood and struggling with her own self-image, Marie is given back by inspiring and mentoring young women all over the world. She's a coach, speaker, mentor, CEO, mother, and an amazing inspiration to all who know her. Welcome to the show, Marie. How are you today? I'm doing great, and I'm honored to be here on the show with you guys. Thank you so much. We're honored, too. We are honored. Yeah, we were just talking uh, right before the show, and want to congratulate you in front of everyone. You just had a wedding in your family. Yeah, my son, my 23-year-old son, 22-year-old son got married and his wife's going in the military. They wanted to tie the knot before she left May 1st. What branch is she going into? She Army. Okay, very nice. Harry, you got any kids that are about to get married? Uh, no, my oldest is 21 and I hope they all get married like soon. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So Marie, welcome. It's so nice to have you on the show. Could you just give us a background of like, I know your childhood, but for the listeners, tell us, I mean, it's just such an amazing story. Sure. Well, I I didn't have, a, you know, a traditional uh, upbringing because my, I, I don't know who my father was. I'm a product of rape. And how this happened is my mom was in a car accident. My grandparents were traveling to to Mexico to a wedding from the U.S. And this this kind of reminds me, uh, this situation that they went through and the coronavirus that we were going through now kind of reminds me of how uncertain the future is, but how important it is to, to maintain hope. And what I mean is they were going to this wedding expecting to have a huge celebration, you know, have lots of fun and, you know, it's going to be a great time. But on the way over there, they had a car accident totally unexpected. It was raining and they were um, driving on a road co- called La Espina del Diablo, the devil's uh, spine. And my mother's head was crushed. And it was about 24 hours before anybody stopped to help. And people that actually did stop before, but it wasn't to help. It was to steal. They stole all of their belongings, everything they owned. And finally, a truck stopped 24 hours later and took them to the closest hospital at the hospital. The doctor said that 
that my mom was really lucky to still be alive, but she wasn't going to make it because she had severe bleeding in the brain. And so my grandmother, being a woman of faith, she said, well, you need to just do surgery to stop the bleeding. And the doctor says, well, there, that's not possible because we don't have any surgeons here with the capacity to do that type of surgery and to bring someone from another hospital, take them a day to get here. By the time they get here, she will be dead. And my grandmother said, I don't care. You're going to bring someone to do the surgery. So they did. They brought someone. And fortunately, my mom did survive the surgery, but she was in a coma for several months. And the doctor says, well, there's no sign of recovery. We're just going to have to pull the plug. And my grandmother said, no, um, don't do that. Just, just, just give me one more day. And my grandmother, she just maintained that faith and prayed. And, and I know it's difficult because for some people, it seems like our prayers are not answered. Fortunately for my grandmother, the next day, my mom opened her eyes and she had to learn how to walk, talk and how to do everything all over again but she still had brain damage. So it was very devastating to my grandmother because this was her, her first child. And my mother was very beautiful. She was in college on her way to do great things. And so for my grandmother, it was devastating that this daughter that she had all of a sudden didn't have the mental or the physical capacity she had before the accident. So her whole life changed, but she was able to go home and when she went home, after she was learning how to walk, talk and do everything all over again, she was raped. And she came home, she told my grandparents she was raped. And that resulted in a pregnancy. The doctor said, you're going to have to just abort this child because she's on a lot of medications. Uh, she's got mental problems, physical disabilities. There's no way she can carry this child to term, plus all the medications she's on. This child's going to be born with all kinds of abnormalities. And on top of that, the shame that's going to come on the family to have a child out of wedlock. Unbelievable. Where where was this, Marie? Was this in Mexico or where? In the States. So they had brought her back to the States. So now it was the doctors in the States telling my mom that, hey, you can't have this child. So my mother said, you know, God saved my life. I'm not going to take the life that's inside of me now. I'm not. And the doctors were, she doesn't know what she's talking about because she doesn't have a full mental capacity and because of the brain damage. So they told my grandparents, you need to sign documentation to abort this child. And my grandparents said, no, we'll, we'll help her. The doctor says, you don't know what you're talking about. Y'all are too old. And then how are you going to take care of a child with all these physical disabilities? You don't know how this child's going to come out. And my grandmother said, I don't care how this child's going to come out. I'm going to help take care of the child. And because of my grandmother's decision and my mother's decision, I'm here today and I'm so thankful for that decision. And it reminds me every day that we can still have hope, even though everything around us, around us seems tragic or it doesn't seem to be our going our way. And I know a lot of us are, you know, they say we're all in this together. We're in the same boat, but we're really not. We're just in the same storm. We're on the same storm, but... um and I don't know who wrote this because I read this somewhere, but it's so true that, you know, some people's boats, you know, they may be sinking. Um, like some people may have lost their jobs. Some people have more work than they've ever had because of the coronavirus. Some people are making more money than they've ever made. And some people are making less money. So everybody's in a different boat, the same storm. Just everyone is being affected differently. And I think about my grandparents and how their faith, 
they were going through this storm, but they chose how to react to it. And they chose to remain hopeful through it all. And even though there was tragedy, I mean, my mom never got her, she never got to live a normal life because of the mental, uh, because of the mental disabilities, the brain damage. And they still remained positive. And so it was a, a lesson for me, but I didn't always see it that way. Sure. You know, I, I, you know, as a kid, I saw myself as a victim and, and I went through this, you know, feeling down, feeling bad about myself. Well, can I ask at what age were you told this story? So I heard it pretty much from the day I was born. I mean, oh. I, I don't know the exact time because I, my grandmother had a beauty salon. So she would take yeah. me to work um, with her and I heard it all the time. So I grew up hearing the story about the rape part that really didn't sink in or I really didn't understand that till I was about eight or nine because my mother had uh, gotten married. She was married when I was born. So I thought that that was my dad. Right. And I didn't really get it until I was around eight or nine. This lady walked into uh, my grandmother's beauty salon and she gave me her number and she said, and I've not shared this anywhere, like mm-hmm. only like close friends. So I've not shared this publicly, gave her um, the uh, gave, gave me a phone number. And she said, I'm your grandmother. Well, at that time, I thought all old ladies were my grandma. Like, yeah. I, I just thought every old lady came into the salon. Abuela, abuelita. abuelita. <laughs> yeah, abuelita. I was like, abuela. So I, it didn't sink in. And then my grandmother told me, well, he's not your father. His name was George Cholik. He was Czechoslovakian. And I didn't understand. And I think as I got older, then I began to comprehend and understand. And then I actually called that number when I was around 13 years old. I called Mm -hmm. and he answered and he said, God forgave me for what I've done. Don't call again. Oh my goodness. How did that make you feel? Very sad because, and and I told uh, some family members and they said, you shouldn't feel bad because you're blessed that you have a family and he doesn't deserve you. But the psychology of it, I think kids, they always long for that mother, father, they want to know who their dad is. And I still didn't, I don't think I comprehended the rape part. I didn't comprehend that um, until I was a lot older. And, but I still like, even today, like, I'm curious, what does he look like? You know, and I do know um, from her that he has a family. I might have half and half brothers and sisters somewhere out there. I don't know where, but um, it's just always been a curious thing for me. How has that whole experience, which is absolutely amazing to hear, how has that motivated you from there when you were a, uh, you know, going through your high school years, because this brings you like to the age of 13 or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you had obviously a very unique background and high school is tough enough on kids in general. Was this like a big motivating thing for you? Or was it like something that just kind of held you back or I, you know, during that time, it was really hard because I got very close to George Cholik, who was my stepdad, but I thought he was my real dad. And he did. He didn't treat me like a stepchild, treated me like a bonus child. He was just so good to me. He uh, he actually had a band called uh, Country Roland, and it was a very successful band. Um, mm-hmm. And the, he actually made a couple of albums and he played steel guitar, country music. So I was so close to him. And right around that time, like soon after, uh, he ended his life. 
He committed oh suicide. And I uh, saw wow. that and it was just devastating to me because I, I'll never forget that day I um, was with my grandmother. And, and I'm so sorry. If you want me to not talk about this, I won't. But no, uh, we do. no okay. absolutely. This is all about, yeah, there's so many lessons in here. It's just uh, amazing. So, yeah. It might be hard for some to hear, but I was um, with my grandmother. It was a Sunday afternoon and my grandmother said, we've got to, we've got to go something. Um, we got to go visit your, your dad. And we we're going to his apartment to go visit him. And when we got there, I just used, I don't know, on the drive over there, I felt inside something was wrong. Like something was horribly wrong. And when we got there, there was a lot of police and there was a yellow tape and I just ran like really fast and the police tried to hold me back, but they just couldn't hold me back. And I'll never forget that he was hanging from the ceiling and it was just hard. I It, it was so traumatizing for me that I, I my grandmother couldn't stop me from crying. And so she took me to the priest. He connected us to some doctor and they prescribed Valium and I never took it. I would spit it out. And I'm so mm -hmm. thankful that I never took it because it's very addictive, yeah. very addictive. And uh, I never took it. And I just kind of, um, I, I, I went through a major depression and I, I couldn't snap out of it. I, cause I didn't understand why he would do such a thing. It, it didn't make sense to me. And, and I couldn't comprehend it. And I blamed my mom for it. Um, I blamed everybody for it. And I just went through a major depression and the counselor suggested that I skip school for an entire year. So I didn't go to ninth grade and I graduated a year later. That really impacted me in a, in a significant way. I can't imagine. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, so the, you know, the whole idea of, you know, where people get their drive in life, right? You obviously have massive drive is where you have, and not that you've ended up there yet because you're still traveling. And mm -hmm. I mean, I just love the expression, something about every day I'm growing, right? So yeah. I, I just love that. So when you look back at your youth and we all look back and say, boy, you know, I wish I did this different and I could have done that or whatever, but yet you have looked back and you, you know, obviously have incredible lessons that you've learned that have put you in, the, in this place in life where you are today, but yet you still feel like you're growing. So can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I believe that we never stop growing. And this is a lesson I learned from my grandfather. My grandfather was a barber. So he had his barbershop right next to my grandma's beauty salon. They both retired at the same time. But when he retired, he says, I, you never stop learning. You, you always have to, he says, Marie, it's like a muscle. And he used to run every day. He walked to work while my grandma drove because he wanted to exercise. And he would tell me, just like you exercise to keep those muscles strong, you have to exercise your mind to keep your mind strong. And he says, no one's ever going to put me in a nursing home because I'm not going to get Alzheimer's because I'm going to exercise my mind. So when he retired, he joined, he went back to school. He went back awesome. to school to, and he would read the, he would I read love the dictionary. Him. Yeah, I, I did too. And so he was, he was just a great inspiration in my life. And he, he's the one that really instilled in me the importance of learning that you doesn't matter if you're a hundred years old, you never finish learning everything. We, there's so there's still hope for me. There's still hope for yeah, me because I'm almost a hundred. 
<laughs> no, you're not, but there's hope for all of us. <laughs> oh, that's great. So Marie, you skipped ninth grade. Somewhere along the line, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't just snap out of it and now you're no longer depressed and you're a happy person. But somewhere between then and your late teens, you, you got into the workforce, you, you know, started getting a job. Talk, talk to us about that transition because there are a lot of people that they're deep in the weeds with depression and not knowing what's going on or what's going to happen. Um, how did you get so out of that? One of the things, I started working really young. As a teenager, I was I worked at a doctor's office. I did computer programming. So back then it was, you know, D-Base, COBOL, all these uh, software programs. And how I, did you learn that? So you, you got grandparents who are running a barbershop <laughs> And that beauty salon or yep, hair salon? Beauty salon, yep. They're running, you know, they're I'm I'm assuming your grandparents weren't very computer savvy back then. No. <laughs> and and your mom, you know, your your stepfather, essentially your father, he's a musician. Your mom, she's, you know, she's in her condition. So where where did you even learn the computer stuff? High school, they had a they had a computer programming class, and it was like the last elective available. And believe it or not, I, I was failing everything, but I had a hundred in that class because I thought it was so much fun that you can create these little programs. And I'm like, oh, this is fun. So I, um, you know, I got a job at a my you know, first started at a doctor's office. Then I worked at a print shop. I lied to them about my computer skills. <laughs> they had, I just thought I could learn anything. And they, they said, well, do you have, can you, can you do typesetting? And it was a typesetting machine. I'm like, sure, I can do that. And they said, well, go talk to this typesetting department. I went over there and I said, what are the codes? I, I can have a copy and I just like memorized them. So the next day when we took the test, it was just all by memory. I got the job. But awesome. I, I, I I shouldn't have lied. That's wrong. Don't go out and lie about it. But that's what I did. And we call it acting. <laughs> so you're acting a role that you were a typesetter. Thus, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. not lying if you yeah. pass the test. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that's and and I think my drive now looking back because I've had to go through a lot of this learning why I do the things that I do. And one of the things that I, I recognize is somehow subconsciously, I wanted to prove to the world, I, I, I'm i worth something. I have value. Mm. And yeah. now I realize we don't have to do that. You, you, do, you don't have to do all this. But for me, somehow internally, that's how I acted out. So in my job, I've always been very successful in Every almost every job I've had, I've been very successful, and I think that's where that drive comes from, or has come from in the past. You know, I realized you you had asked about the depression. One of the realizations that I came to was that we we have no control over other people, their decisions, what they do, and how people act. We have no control of sometimes the government does what they're going to do. And we have to be careful who we trust in. And I came to the realization that even though you may love someone so, so much, we can't control what they do. That's their choice. That's their decision. And we there's nothing we can do about it. And as a result of that, some people are going to make decisions that are going to hurt us. And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. 
but we can't control it. All we can control is what we choose to do with what they do. So if they do something that hurts us, we can choose to um, be bitter, resentful, or we can choose to accept, hey, it's sad what they did. That was their choice. Just be content with our situation, with, with our decision and our choices. Because if we react based on somebody else's decision, that's not going to help anybody. It's not going to help us and it's going to put us in a worse situation. Wow. That's a great observation about life in general, isn't it? Amazing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, very powerful. So, all right. So you're in a print shop and then what happens after that? So after that, I, um, I was, I got married really young as I was 19 and it was just a very, not a good marriage. And, um, I won't get into all the details, but I got a position at a, at a bank and I, I lied again. <laughs> it was, You're acting again. I admire your consistency. <laughs> <laughs> So the, it was a purchasing position and I needed that because in the print shop, they moved me from, uh, they said I'd be good at sales. So they moved me in sales, but at the time my husband was really jealous and I, to save my marriage, I thought I can't do sales anymore because he was beginning to follow me to my sales, you know, meetings and stuff. So I said, forget this. So I lied. I said I had um, experience in purchasing. I saw this position and they said, what's your experience? I purchased paper. I purchased ink I, for the print shop. But it wasn't like the level of purchasing they wanted. I got the job and then um, I really love marketing. So the marketing girl was always, we became good friends and I was asking her for, she was asking me for ideas. And in the print shop, one of the things that how I did sales was when I would go, try to get a big deal since I had experience now with the typesetting and graphic design, the way it was done way back in the days, I would just design something for them and for free. And so that's how I did really well in sales there. And that was hard to come by back then. Like it's not like Adobe Photoshop or whatever was. Oh no, it was all coding, like a box. You had to multiply by a certain thing and then, you know, all these codes. Oh my goodness. And you couldn't yeah. see what it looked like until it printed and the photographic paper was so expensive. So you couldn't make mistakes. So you gave them a gift. I gave them a gift. I did. So when she asked me for ideas, I'd give her all these ideas for, you know, for ads and stuff. And then one day she took me out to eat with the president and they passed me a note and I had only been on the job several months. So I thought, oh, I'm fired. Oh my goodness. Cause I thought it was a note saying you're fired. So I opened it and they said, do you want to be the marketing director? And I looked at her and I'm like, but you're the marketing director. And she says, but you're better at it. And I go, but you got a marketing degree. I don't. She goes, but I don't have ideas. You do. And I'll take the purchasing position. So we oh my goodness. swapped. And wow. then I was in charge of marketing for seven different uh, locations. We grew from like several locations to seven by the time I left. And, and the reason I left there was because they were bought out by a bigger bank. You know, banks are always merging. Right. And so those bought up by another bank. And then I began working for a company. Uh, I started my own freelance uh, marketing agency. And then from there, I went to work for USAA, which is insurance for the military. And I did Alliance, what's called Alliance Services. And I handled the marketing for FedEx, Sprint, Earthlink, and all the big Alliance partners. So then I, um, I started with one line of business. And then with this six months, we made it profitable. So it was so profitable, they 
gave me another line of business and then another one and then another one. But by this time, I was, uh, I, I, I was, I was out of town traveling for a business trip when I came home. So I was on my second marriage now and I came home early. What I saw was just so devastating. Uh, my boys had been beat so bad. I just, I just grabbed them and I left. How many kids did you have then? At the time, four. Wow. So four yeah. kids. And you just grabbed them and you left. I grabbed them and I left and I didn't look back and I, I left this, you know, six figure job at USA, left everything, everything. We, we, we left with nothing and uh, parental rights. He lost parental rights. We had one child together. So that was the fourth and he lost parental rights. So I'm, you know, literally a single parent with four kids raising them. No, I didn't know what was next, but I was just thankful. By this time, I had developed this um, mindset of being thankful, you know, for we're no longer in, you know, being abused. My kids are never going to get hurt again. I'm thankful we're safe. I'm thankful they're not going to be in that position again. That's all I could hope for. I didn't know what was next, but I knew I couldn't go to a nine to five job. No one would give me one because uh, two, my son, my oldest was diagnosed with JDMS and it's an autoimmune disease. And at that time, there was only one doctor in Houston who treated that. And so that was very expensive, having to go once a month for medications. He had physical therapy. I thought if I get into sales, I could have my own hours. I could request commission and the sky's the limit if you're on commission, right? Yeah. That, that was my mindset. I um, Nobody would give me a job. Everybody said, you don't have experience. I'm like, look, I manage a $600 million marketing budget for USA. If I can convince them how to spend their millions of dollars, I could sell. And they're like, uh, no, it's not the same thing. So finally... I um, convinced a company to give me an opportunity if I paid my own way for training. So I went to training, got a hundred on all the tests, and I was excited because I'm like, "Yes, I'm in." Wait, wait, wait. So ho- hold on, <laughs> hold on, <laughs> back, back up. <laughs> what, what what type of company was it? It was a medical device distribution company at that time. So you went to a medical device company, no medical mm-hmm. device sales experience whatsoever, and you told them to give you a chance and you were going to pay your way for training. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty normal everyday story. What would you do if somebody came to you and said, I'll pay for my own training, Harry, will you hire me? I would hire them. <laughs> I mean, if they were that much of a go-getter, absolutely. They didn't want to hire me, though. <laughs> no, it sounds, I mean, they're nuts, but you stuck with them, right? I, I did, um, because after the training, they were like, you know, some of you, even though you did well, you're not going to make it because you don't have experience. And this was back in the 90s, you know. I was in my late 20s. So this was a long time ago. And they said, this is a man's world. This is high capital equipment, 35 to 70,000 to $150,000 pieces of equipment. You can't do this. And I said, look, give me a chance, straight commission. You have nothing to lose. But this was the 1990s. Wasn't the 1890s, right? I mean, (laughs) when Harry went through high school. (laughs) Right, exactly. I'm just thinking, it's like, what kind of company is back in the 90s saying this is a man's world? Yeah, I mean, so you were in a uh, a weird little situation, obviously. Was it Texas? Yeah, it was Texas. But the thing is, with medical devices, it was mostly male. It was all male. I was the only female in the room. There was like a group of 40 guys. I was the only minority, the only female in the room pharmacological or pharmaceuticals, it's mostly women now. But back then in um, medical devices, it's different. So that's the way it was back then. And even today, you you mostly have men doing the 
like the high-end million dollar yeah. pieces of equipment. It's mostly men, but things have changed a lot. There's a lot of women doing yeah. it now. You were groundbreaking. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I got the job, but unfortunately my grandfather, who I shared with you earlier, uh, he had a big impact in my life, was diagnosed with leukemia. So I knew I had 30 days, but I didn't know how much time he had left. So I spent every day by his bedside. And three weeks later, he passed away. So I got a call from the president. And he says, look, you haven't sold anything. You're, we're going to terminate your contract. And I'm like, wait, I have one minute le- left. Let me have this one week left. And he says, okay, yeah, whatever. He just laughed and, and hung up. That week, I went to work and I called and a lot of doctors. And finally, on the last day, I ended up selling a doctor that had just opened up a a new, his own practice, six offices, and I sold him six machines. So I met my quota. These are like 37 to $50,000 pieces of equipment. So I met my quota for like the next couple of months. What were you selling? So at that time, it was pain management equipment. And the, the sad thing is after about a year, I lost that job because manufacturer cut the contract with the distributor. And they asked if I would sell for them direct, but the distributor said they would sue me and I didn't want to get in a lawsuit. So I went on my own and I started selling for balance back and it's equipment for dizziness, concussion, traumatic brain injuries. And I went through the same thing. And when they saw that I had a track record, they gave me an opportunity. So it wasn't quite as hard. I, I became the number one national sales representative for that company as well. But then one day I get called and I, I remember the day because I was in, I had just done Baylor University sure. and University of Texas. And I was at a restaurant. The VP was coming down to see me. So I thought I'm getting a promotion or something big's happening because I just did some huge sales. They said, we're really proud of you. We're proud of what you're doing. You're doing so well. And we want to offer you a position. So I'm thinking VP or maybe um, stock options, something big, right? So hands me a sheet of paper and I look at it. And what he was offering me was what I was making in a month, what they wanted to pay me in a year. And I was like, oh my goodness, I, I can't do this. Yeah, I, I can't accept this. I'll, I'll, I'll stay on the pay structure I'm on. Thank you very much. And they're like, well, if you don't accept it, you either accept it or you're fired. Wow. Yeah. And so I was, I went from making a really good income to making nothing. And here I'm a single mom, not knowing what's coming next. So like, you know, one day I'm really happy. I'm, you know, I'm a sales rep. I'm a content being a sales rep. I'm content with the way things are going. And boom, the next day, everything's just taken right under me. So you never know what's going to happen. Right. Yes. This has been a theme. Hasn't yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Kind of like people are going through right now, actually going through yeah. COVID, yeah. right? I mean, similar. Right. So sorry, Marie. So, so I'm assuming that you didn't take the position. No, I couldn't because there was no way I could afford, um, I'd go bankrupt because what they didn't understand is I was paying my own marketing. I was paying my own travel. And in order for me to make a sale, say in New York city, I had to travel with four kids. I had to travel with a nanny and that's expensive. And so I I couldn't make those sales and I would have to, and I sold all over the U S so there's just no way I could afford, I'd go bankrupt you know, if I I accepted what they were offering. So I couldn't, I I just couldn't afford it. Knowing what you know now, right? And you're growing every single day. And since that point, that Marie is a whole different woman today. 
Why do you think they did that? Greed. They thought um, that, that's what they told me. They said, you're not an engineer. You're not a doctor. You shouldn't be making that kind of money. Hey, we're doctors. We built this company. We can we can do it without you. The only reason they buy from you is because it's a good product. They don't buy for you for, for any other reason. And we can just oh sell gosh. direct. So that's what they thought. They thought they were going to save a lot of money without having to pay me the big commission checks. Got it. Yeah, you, pro- you introduced the... Uh the product to the market it had some familiarity probably got some traction going and they thought yeah it has nothing to do with marie it's just our awesome product uh okay so what happens then um where did you go well i could have i could have remained better and i think of the lessons my grandfather taught me about forgiveness and forgiveness doesn't mean it it doesn't hurt because it hurt. It hurt so much. I mean, I was devastated, but my grandfather told me, you know, it doesn't, you don't do tit for tat. You know, he always told me revenge is the Lord's, you know, don't try to be, to seek your own revenge, leave it alone. So as much as I wanted to, I did not I just had to figure something else out. And I thought, well, I'm good at sales. I've done this before. I'll go find someone else to sell for. And I found a couple of companies to sell for, which I did. But in the process, I had developed wonderful relationships with clinicians. As I'm sharing with them what happened to me, he says, we need this product. Can you find it for us? It didn't exist. So we created a product and I started a new company and I got FDA clearance. And within two years, the company that fired me called me and they said, Hey, we heard your success. You're doing so well. Do you want to invest in our company? And I think back and I think if I was bitter, you know, people told me, why don't you sue them? Why don't you do this? If I would have done that, I would have never had that opportunity. They would have never called me. So I flew to Ohio because I was in Texas. So I flew to Ohio and I brought in an accountant to look at the books and he shows me the books. And he says, Marie, look at the sales. They're amazing. Oh yeah, they're so awesome. And he says, you did 80% of those sales. He goes, look at your name. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't know that. So I said, I want to buy the company. And instead of investing, um, I want to buy all the shares. And six months later, I bought the company that had fired me. But you didn't buy it for their asking price, I heard. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> I did not. I, I got a good deal on it. And that was um, 10 years ago. And at that time, they said, yeah, she's going to bankrupt the company. She's going to bankrupt herself within six months. The company will be gone. Well, 10 years later, we're still here. I'm not saying... We haven't had challenges, even during the COVID, we're having challenges because uh, our main um, doctors are neurologists and audiologists, and most of those have been asked to shut their doors. So if I can ask, during this whole period of time where you got into sales, what was your training, sales training? Were you reading? Did I mean, how did you learn how to sell? Or is this all pure, natural instinct? <laughs> well... I believe that I got a lot of my sales training from my grandmother's beauty shop, believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only place they can sell you a $50 bottle of shampoo here. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I'll be buying shampoo. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what's the sales secret from the uh, hair salon? For example, my grandmother... She always had cookies and coffee during, she always had a gift for everyone. It was like really customer service driven. During Christmas, she was so loved. I remember during Christmas, almost half the salon was filled with gifts from her customers because they loved her so much. But then she was always giving, she she wasn't looking at, 
you know, what's in it for me? It's like, how can I help you? And also when on weekends, she was a collector of antiques. So on weekends, we hit flea markets and we, she bought all these antiques and then she'd sell them because she had so much. So then she had like a booth at a flea market where I'd help her sell. And she taught me all of these little, you know, this is, we're going to sell it for this price. This is how much you can mark down and, you know, et cetera. And so she'd leave me there and she'd say, I'm going to pay you based on how much you sell. So are you kidding me? In a day I'd make two, $300. And for a kid, that's a lot of money, you know, for one day. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did the best I could in sales and everything I learned, I, I, I would say I learned from her. I read a lot of books. I don't believe you're born a salesperson. Um, it's, it's what I've been taught by others, like my grandmother and books that I've read. And I don't agree with everything I've read. In fact, some of the things I've read, I tried for a little bit and they backfired. And so through a trial and error, I've, I've learned, um, some of these sales techniques. What, what would you say is the biggest surprise that you have found out to be true? from going into sales, actually being in sales. Something that really surprised you once you were in sales and became successful compared to whatever you might've thought sales was like prior to getting into it. Okay. I have to kind of think on that one, think of a situation of something that I thought that I, that I thought sales was like, but then I realized it wasn't. Is that what you're asking? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Can you ask the question? Because it's way better the way I asked it. <laughs> I, I just want to make sure I understand the question. Yeah. You try to interpret. Okay. okay. English is only my first language and I'm still learning it. Yeah. Um, but if you, uh, yeah. So it's but all that's, about. But, but see what Marie just did right there, right? I mean, how many sales reps would just jump <laughs> right, in yeah. answering? She, she not really phrase. understanding. Right. Yeah. She, she Yeah, let me understand. Let me ask your question better than you just asked (laughs) your question here. (laughs) So I, you know, I don't know that I've I, I can think of a specific situation, but I'll, I'll share one with you. And I know if there's sales experts, I, I don't mean to be offensive, but I took a course. We love it. I took a course on NLP. And I, and, and I heard from a sales rep, this works. This is, is amazing. You got to take this course. So I took the course, got the, you know, did the whole thing, bought all the books, the CDs, the cassettes, immersed myself in it. And I was already successful in sales when I, when I learned mm-hmm. this. And so I tried it out and it just totally backfired on me. And then I realized, oh my goodness, it, it, it's for me, it was manipulation tactic. We don't have to manipulate you. You don't have to speak someone's exact language. You need to understand where their heart is. What are their needs? And if you're sincere and you're honest, not in yourself or what you're trying to to gain, because if you're always looking at what you're trying to gain, you're not going to be successful. You may be for the short while. Maybe NLP might help you for the short, short while. But I've been in medical for 25 years now, and I still have customers that call me and say, Marie, should I buy this device? Can you research it for me? Because they trust me. I have been in it long enough to see sales reps come and go and they have to sw- they have to go sell something different. They have to go work for someone else because they've burned their bridges. They have, uh, they did a good job selling, but their reputation, uh, they lied to make the sale. And then it came out later on, or they used manipulation tactics, and that never helped. And so I stay clear away from NLP or any type of manipulation tactics. And there's a, one of the most powerful lessons that I learned 
it was from an older man. He, he was so amazing. He was in sales, but he uh, was selling way back in the day. I, I don't know, in the 50s, 40s, maybe bras like they men used to go to house to house way back in the day to sell bras. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> and That's the Mandalay Company. <laughs> the Mandalay so company. He, he was like, <laughs> sorry, he, he became the top. That's the bro, Harry. <laughs> he became the top rep in the in the country selling bras. This is weird. Okay, but then he that is yeah, weird. And then Ram, I, I need you to try this. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. So, um, after that, he he started selling. I don't, I don't remember exactly what he sold, but he was a million dollar producer. He would make a mil over a million dollars a year in sales in the fifties. Yeah, this is like wow. way back, and maybe longer than that because this was when I met him. I was like thirty one, and he was already in his eighties. Okay, so who knows when yeah. it was? Way back, and he yeah. became a really good friend of mine, and and he taught me this. He says. I never, ever counted my commission check. I never knew how much I was going to get. I, I didn't care. I didn't look at that. And he said, don't ever, ever look at your commission check. The money will come if you do the right thing. And then one of the things, so I started testing this. So I, I would be out with sales reps and they'd be writing down, I'm going to make this much commission, this is how much I'm going to make, and I'm going to close this doctor, and I'm going to make 30% or whatever the commission was at the time. And they never made it, and they'd be just so disappointed, be angry, they'd be furious. And I just go in, you know, if, you know, if I can help you get what you want and, and help you you know, accomplish your needs, you know, everything will turn out okay. So then um, I never counted, and I always did very, very well, but I never counted before going in. And it's kind of like they know you're in it. You're just in it for the money. So beautiful. What you just said. I mean, so many, I mean, over the years, it's, I cannot tell you the number of times I watched people on my sales team counting the commission before the deal was signed. And that always leads to heartbreak, right? Because then you don't want to, you don't want to give up anything. It's down to the nickel. And then the client might want to change their mind on a little something and it's still a great deal. But then now you're disappointed because you're down a hundred dollars or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I never was a fan of counting the commission before the deal was signed because you can't really do the right thing for the client. Right. But what you just said throughout this whole thing is really, it's not about tactics. It's about what the client really needs. Mm -hmm. And you could pick up on that early on. It sounded like. Marie, doctors are probably some of the toughest people to get in front of because they're so busy, right? If they're not in front of patients, they're not making money and it's a business. I mean, they need to be in front of patients helping. What was your tactic to get in with the doctors to see you? So I always did the opposite of what every rep did. Every rep would go in and they, you know, one of the rules that was told to me was only speak to the decision maker or you're wasting your time. Well, I treated everybody as a decision maker. Everyone was a decision maker. So I treated them like the receptionist. You're the decision maker. This is going to change. You know, this is going to make you a hero in this office. If, if you get this, the doctor's going to love you, you know, and, um, and, and then I would explain to them, like, if they were the ones making the decision and you know what doctor's offices, well, now a lot of them are HMO, but single practitioners and they're, if they own their own practice, a lot of times 
The person at the front desk may be their son, daughter, cousin, aunt, uncle, wife. You don't know who's at the front desk. And that's one of the things I learned many times. It's a very dear friend or a close family member. And if the representative goes in and they think they own the place and they think they're like, they're God, because a lot of them act that way, the they're going to whisper to the doctor, hey, that rep is so rude. Don't let him in. And that's why they can't get in to see the doctor. They'll never make it. That's beautiful. Huh? What a great advice. The, yeah, that's just such a great gem. I mean, uh, there's a line out there. I forgot who said it. It was uh, Dale Carnegie, someone really famous. Uh, something about treating the janitor like the CEO. Yeah, it's true. Right. So true. And you get so much further in uh, opportunities by doing that. And people love you. I mean, they're going to welcome you in. By your first name. Yeah, absolutely. Now you're you're in a CEO position. You still go all over the place, probably not as much as when you sold across the country, but um, and you're seeing doctors. Do you have salespeople that are working for you? We do. We have distributors, independent distributors that, that sell for us. Do you ever look at them and you're like, what the hell are you doing? I would have been selling quadruple what you're selling right now. Many times I thought, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is salespeople, they think they know it all. And if you think you know it all, you're not, you're going to struggle. And that's one of the lessons I learned. And I've experienced it firsthand where I've gone with a sales rep where they want to show the doctor how smart they are. So they go in with all this terminology, like I'm as smart as you are, doctor. And they'll use all this medical terminology. And then the doctor's like, oh, really? You're challenging me. So then it becomes a fight and not a physical fight, but just a fight of words trying to show who's better. And I just, if the doctor asks me a question I don't understand, and I may know the terminology, I'm, you know what? I'm not a doctor, but I'll connect you to my clinical director who knows and can answer that question for you because you never, ever want to appear. And even if you know more than maybe you're talking to a nurse or someone and you know more than they do, you should never, ever display that or say that you do. That's just like the worst thing. Another beautiful gem worth millions, ladies and gentlemen. So are you comfortable with saying, I don't know the answer? I am comfortable saying I don't know the answer. Exactly. So why do you think salespeople struggle with that uh, phrase? I think it's because their ego, they don't want to appear that they they don't know. They want to be seen as the expert, but there's nothing wrong in saying that you don't know or connect and, and then connecting them with someone who does know the answer or saying, I'll get back with you. And you'll be much more respected than giving the wrong answer or pretending that you know and taking it. Yeah. That is so awesome. I mean, I can't tell you, again, this is a number of things that over the years is that you can always tell which salesperson was going to sell uh, strategically in an account versus the ones who would sell and move on because they just didn't have the ability to go into an area where they didn't know the answer. So pride or ego got in the way of their sales success, right? It's not because right they don't know or they don't want to know. It's just I'm too proud to say I don't know. It's like the dumbest thing in the world, right? What advice, if I had a group of salespeople listening to you, Marie, what advice would you give them if you were trying to get them to cross-sell into accounts instead of just selling one product moving on? Don't be afraid to admit that you don't know. Don't stop learning. You got to keep learning. Don't stop learning. You, We never finish learning. We never know it all. And if you have a heart of, you know, seeking answers, wanting to know 
wanting to know truth, wanting to know some answers, seek it out, but test it. Look at, look at everything. Don't just take one person's word for it. You need to test it out because not all the advice out there is good advice. You know, there's so many sales books I've read. A lot of, a lot of them have great advice. A lot of them have bad advice. So be careful, you know, where, where is it coming from? Is it coming from, is it in the, in your best interest or is it in the customer's best interest? If you're always looking for the customer's best interest, your best interest is going to come in. It is going to come in, but you have to have the customer's best interest in mind first. And so what that advice that's coming out, you have to look at where, where is it coming from? Is it coming from, from a point of it's feeding your ego? It's feeding you or is it feeding your customer? And that's kind of how you can discern whether it's good advice or bad advice. And, and that's, that's one of the things that, you know, I always try to, to pay attention to. And like I said, I don't, I don't believe that, um, I'm a born seller rep or that I can sell anything because I have to believe in the product. If you don't believe in the product, you don't believe in the service. If it's, if it's not something you yourself would buy or use, then don't represent that company. Go find a company that you respect. Go find a company with a product that you believe in because you have to have that passion for it. And it has to be sincere. It can't be, it can't be fake. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, you know, it's like if you're bringing credibility to the company, like if you are the credibility for the company, then you need to go elsewhere, right? Right. Because you have to have someone behind you that's also credible, right? But you know, this, this idea of saying, I don't know is really priceless. And I'm willing to bet that people saw that in you when you were new, you know, going into places that you probably never dreamt about going into and having conversations with, you mentioned University of Texas and Baylor. These are pretty big accounts, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and you're, you're a person that freely admits that you didn't have all the answers. I'm willing to bet that was a huge reason for some for your success it's just that humility yeah and being willing to find out marie so i mean you're you're pretty successful you've been doing this for 25 years you've had this company now for what 10 a little over 10 uh-huh 10 years and within the last i'd say three or four years you your speaking career really took off i mean you're i've seen you in jamaica working with young ladies to help them with their self-image in the UK, in some huge event, you and Nick Wojcik were in Texas providing value. Like you're all over the place, Marie. By the way, it's so cool that we have you on our show. So what's driving that? Like why, why not just stick to being the CEO of Balance Back and help me understand what you're doing? So what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I never. I never sought out to be a speaker. It, it sort of happened because, you know, when I joined John Maxwell team, I wanted to get that leadership because here I'm like, what am I doing leading this company? I, I don't know anything. <laughs> and so um, I wanted to get this leadership stuff down packed. And I think it was Joyce Diaz was like, Marie, how did you become CEO of this company? So I told her I got fired about the company because blah, blah, you need to share that on stage. And I was like, okay, a year passes. Why haven't you done it? Like, okay, I'll do it. So then I signed up to, to speak on stage and I had this dream. And, and in my dream, God's like, that's not your story. This is your story. And it's the story I shared earlier about my, my mom and my birth. And so before I know it, I'm sharing that story in front of 5,000 people because it was the largest event they ever had during an IMC. And were you there, Eric, or you missed it? I wasn't at the event, but I saw the video. Oh, you saw the video. Okay. So you rocked it, like by the way. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I was never, you know how they say your knees are, uh, are knocking. It's the first time I felt my knees knocking. <laughs> you can tell. You can, I mean, you, you own that stage and uh, that's the first time I heard your story. Rockstar. Yeah, so go ahead. So, so, so after that, um, a lot of women came up to me and they said, you know, I had a lady came up to me. She says, you know, I, I'm 35 years old and for 35 years I've been living with shame. And today you release this shame. And she says, because I too am a product of rape and I was living with my, I was raised oh my by my grandparents goodness. and I was so shameful. Nobody knows about it. And I just, tears are streaming down my face because story after story. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do this if I get asked. So I would get asked to speak and, and the same response. And that's kind of how it started. And then one day, Les Brown calls me and a friend of ours connected us and he told him my story and he says, I want to meet you. And I'm like, okay. And then he says, I'm going to go to your office. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't believe it. Like, whatever. I didn't think he'd show up. I thought he was just saying us to say it. And he shows up and I see him driving up. I see him in the parking lot. I'm like, oh, there's Les Brown. That's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I remember when we were in, um, when Marie came to visit me at my house after I got out of my surgery, she called Les Brown. Like they were like buddies. And it was a video call, I think. He might have been in a hospital too at that point. And she's like, yeah, and me and him were talking. And I'm like, wow, this is like the coolest thing ever. Because I idolized Les Brown. I mean, I, his speech has got me through so many tough days that I, I don't know. I just thought it was the That's coolest great. thing. But then I see Marie. They're like doing selfies together. They're doing like what me and you do here. <laughs> it's her and Les Brown. You know what I mean? Like the guy that's speaking right. at packed stadiums of 70,000 plus people and rocking the house. Eric, we should uh, send Marie a check for $5,000 just for appearing on our podcast. So will you take care of that for her? (laughs) (laughs) I get a family discount. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. All right. So what's next for you, Marie? Um, You know what? I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Wherever, wherever God leads, um, you know, we, we really don't know what, what the future holds because there's so much, uh, so many unknowns right now in, you know, th- we've got people saying that this COVID's going to be worse in the fall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got politicians that want to shut down, keep the shutdown for months on end with no ending in sight. And then there's politicians that want to open it up right away. I don't know, um, what it looks like, but what, since experiencing, um, you know, what I've experienced when I speak on stage, I have a big heart for, for women as single women. I have a podcast called uh, single parent success. It is in Spanish and it's grown to 42 radio stations and it's a Christian station and we're in multiple all over the U S and other countries, Colombia, Chile on AM and FM. Um, radio. So that's one of the things I'm doing. I'm doing a couple of podcasts, um, God's Girls, His Wisdom, uh, doing several things to help others. So any way that I can reach out to uh, struggling single parents, um, that's really where my heart is. And so I'm just looking to wherever I can serve. And that's pretty much it. That is a great answer. What legacy do you want to leave behind? Legacy. Well, you know, for me right now at, at this 
time in my life, um, having, you know, raised four uh, adult children, there are now adult children by myself, I have a heart for families. And my desire is to somehow put a little dent into how can we reconcile families together so that we stop this breakdown of family, you know, I always wanted a perfect family because I didn't have a dad, you know, my mom's situation. And I didn't get that, you know, grow, you know, because of the mistakes I've made, choices I've made uh, with relationships. I didn't get that. And now for my faith is really a big part of my life. It's it's hard. And I know this is a business podcast. Yeah. I'm sorry, but this is a human experience podcast. This is being human. So we wouldn't be authentic if we didn't let you talk about your faith or anything that's really driving you. So yeah. please. And we love it. So yeah, continue. Thank you. So my faith is a, a big uh, part of, of, of my life now. And the way I see it, I, I just see that in, in order to have a solid, um, you know, I guess in order to see culture thrive and societies thrive, you need to have intact families. You know, mother, father, children being raised together by intact families. And I see the breakdown of families. So that's why I have this uh, radio show. That's why I'm doing these podcasts, because I see the effects that it's had on my children. And I see the effects it's had on my life, just just the way I was raised. I'm thankful I had my grandparents there for me, but not everybody has that. Not everybody has, you know, grandparents or aunts and uncles that can help um, raise the child. So my big heart is if I can, and, and even if it's in my own family, you know, I have, uh, now I have three children that are married. If I can just make sure their marriage is solid and it's strong and it, it's until death do us part so that those kids can grow up, you know, with a healthy mother and father. So that's pretty much a legacy I want to leave leave and that's where my heart is at, at this time so based on what you said right because i'm I, I don't share this too often but and i don't remember my childhood well but my mom was also married three times pretty much raised us on her own and i remember i, I had to be two or three but i would remember waking up and i would hear either my dad beating her because he was drunk screaming everything thrown around you went through that with your, I can't remember, I think it was your second husband who was abusive to your children while you were gone. Do you recommend that families stay together in that situation? Because I, I really commend you for what you did. That was brave and it sounds like your kids were raised better with you with love around them than if they would have seen an abusive guy in their life. I absolutely do not recommend in that situation. That's dangerous. And if you're in a situation where there's abuse going on, you need to get out. You need to get to safety. And absolutely, you need to stay away from that person. But my thing is, I think that too many times we look at we look at our culture, we look at TV, we look at the media, and we look at blended families and we think, oh, that that's going to be beautiful. That's what I want. And you seek that out. And so you end up in a second marriage, third marriage, fourth marriage, and, and you're dragging your kids through it all. And your kids are seeing this, the, the break up the family. I just think that if you're a single mom, your first and primary responsibility is your children. You don't have time for anything as you have to take care of your children. You have to focus on your kids to make sure that they're safe, they're healthy, and you're taking care of the emotional, financial needs. 
And a lot of times women, and I can speak for myself because I've been there, we feel like I need a man. I have to have a man. And you don't know. My second husband was a vice president of a bank, very involved in church, very active, um, everybody very charismatic. And the judge was just horrified at what had happened. And had I not come home early that day from that business trip, it could have been hidden for me, you know? And, and I think it was... Um, by God's grace, I got home early. So my thing is, yeah, if but what I see a lot of, I see a lot of this guy treats me so much better than my husband. And it's not, you know, a really a valid reason. Just I, I heard someone say this, if the mar- marriage doesn't serve you anymore, uh, you need to end it. And this is from a president of a very well-known organization and inspires millions of people everywhere. And I thought of that and like, that's just wrong because love is a choice. It's not always a feeling. You don't always feel like loving someone. I mean, let's face it. it, it it's an emotion. It, it is an emotion, but you it's a choice. And, you know, just like our kids. I mean, sometimes my kids drive me nuts, but I still love them. It's a choice. I choose to love them, even though they're not always perfect kids. And if we don't, if we're not living unconditional love, you know, God says he loves us unconditionally, right? But if we're not loving others unconditionally, how are we showing our children what a conditional love is? How can we ever know what that is? If every if we place conditions on everything, you know, if you don't do this, I won't love you. If you don't do this, if I, you don't do that. But with our kids, we love them no matter what. But then with our husband that we're supposed to say, till death do us part, we place all these conditions. So um, That's I... A- I there's so much value in there. I mean, I want to just talk, for, listen for the next couple of hours, but that that is so true uh, and so awesome. I mean, you look at people, uh, I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine. My wife and I have been married for a long time and this whole COVID-19, six weeks, she's, you know, she's threatening bodily harm on me these days because she's just sick of me. So <laughs> I'm kidding, right? But, you know, it's just uh, you have to just endure challenges. You have to think through, is this the person, you know, that I love from whatever number of years ago? What made me love the person? It's a thought process that helps you overcome the challenges, not always a feeling. Right. So I I just love the uh, words of wisdom there. So you have a new fan. I am a huge fan of yours. And I'm an even bigger fan because I'll be honest with you, Marie, I was until I heard you say what you just said, I think deep down inside I felt that way. Like, I'm a big believer of marriage shouldn't be hard. And I think that uh, uh, you should have a partner that's there with you through thick and thin. But if that partner is also making your life hard, just walk away. And, I'm not, you know, I haven't evaluated that in a long time. Now that I have two kids, I don't think I could walk away as fast as I thought I could before. So you've changed my mind. And uh, you're a tremendous inspiration, Marie. We're so glad that you spent time with us today. Again, I don't want to take away from the excitement and all the great things that Marie said, but the you know the wonderful things that you said about sales, about being yourself, about being honest, not being afraid of saying, I don't have the answer or I don't know. Uh, your willingness to just get past what other traditional beliefs are in sales and just be yourself is huge. Your go get them attitude. You call it making little lies. I, I, I refer to it as acting, but you know, your back was against the wall and you needed an opportunity 
and you made the best of it. And I think everything about that is commendable. And uh, I'm just thrilled. I, you know, I'm like Eric. I can't wait till others hear this. I'll add one more thing to it before we go, and that's one thing you said that we kind of brushed over was like, yeah, a doctor asked me, you know, if I knew if I could research this device we couldn't find anything on the market so i just created it and had fda approve it <laughs> like like you brushed over it like it's like yeah i went out and had lunch at chipotle and that was, that was it. like we can have a whole episode on that and what i'm getting out of this is there are so many people out there myself included that we are victims right oh my god my daddy didn't love me oh my god i got fired i'm worthless i suck and you're like, it doesn't even fade you. Like, it didn't even happen. Yeah, I got fired. And then I just went and started my own company. And then, um, yeah, and then I just created a medical device and made some money and went back and bought the company. <laughs> you know, why wouldn't I do that? <laughs> we definitely have to have you back on to hear uh, a little more of the details. But that was a great overview. But, yeah, there's just tons of content. It, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, though. <laughs> So, Where are we finding Marie? Um, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Marie Cosgrove. My website's mariecosgrove.com, which I'm updating. But I will soon have a bunch of resources on there because I'm going to start putting all of my radio shows that I've been doing since um, I've got a ton of episodes. I'll start putting them on there because people ask me, can I get, get the replay on this? Can I get the replay? So I'll start putting those on there. And um, yeah, just follow me on Facebook and, and Instagram. Fantastic. Marie Cosgrove, and we'll we'll put all those links in the show notes for you guys. It's an honor, Marie. You've listened to another episode of Lead, Sell, Grow, the Human Experience Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a nice review. And if you're not a part of our tribe on Facebook, be sure to head over to Facebook and join Lead, Sell, Grow, the Human Experience Tribe. I look forward to speaking with you in the tribe. Have a great day.